Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. If you have a copy of God's Word, join me in the 127th Psalm. Go right to the middle of your Bible if you're using the book form of, your, of the Scriptures, and it should fall open to the Psalms. We're in Psalm 127. We're going to look at all five verses today as we begin a brand new series entitled Building Warriors. I'm, I'm a little apprehensive as I get started with this because this is one of those series where really early on it's easy for certain people to check out. Because about five to seven minutes into what I'm going to say, some of you are going to realize, oh, this is, this is about how to raise children. Pastor Joel's going to spend eight weeks talking about what God's Word teaches about how to raise children. Well, I'm not a parent. Well, let me ask you, how many grandparents are in the room? Raise your hand. Keep them up. All right, now, if you're a parent currently with a kid at home, everybody keep your hands up. Raise your hand. All right. Now, if you've got, if you had kids, but they're grown now and they're out of the house, you're empty now, but you had kids, raise your hand. Okay. If you're a Kidman volunteer and you work with us even once a year, raise your hand. All right. If you've seen a kid on campus this week, <laughs> raise your hand. I have, a, I have a, a point for all of this, right? You see everything? Oh, nearly every hand went up. This is the responsibility of the church as a whole. And even if you are not right now a parent raising a child or struggling with a teenager, you need to be here for the next eight weeks because number one, God's word is never a waste of time. Never. But secondly, there's a second reason you need to be here. Every single one of us is within the sphere of influence of a child or children on this campus that are a part of this church. And to some extent, all of us have a responsibility. See, this isn't just about the family unit, the nuclear family as we understand it with a mother and a father and a bunch of kids. This is about a larger family as well. And we've actually done a rather efficient job over the last couple of decades bifurcating between the nuclear family and the church in such a way that sometimes this one's even seen as the enemy of this one. I need family time. Family comes first. Family, family, family. And then this not only just gets neglected, but it fails to have the power necessary to do what it needs to do for all of these units over here. One of the books on my recommended reading list for you this spring is the book, The Storm-Tossed Family. It's right out there in the foyer. And my friend Russ Moore, who's the author of the book, says the following. We cannot be families if we are not disciples first. We must recognize the joys and responsibilities that come with being part of a family formed not by the blood of biology, but by the blood of crucifixion. The church has often failed at this point. In too many cases, we have turned congregations into silos, packed with countless minivans full of individual families coming to receive instruction and then return on their, into their own self-contained units. The end result, especially in a rootless, hypermobile American culture, is the reality of mothers who are lonely and fear they are failing but who don't want to say anything for fear of being judged or stirring up the mommy wars. Or fathers who are lonely but who aren't supposed to signal that they don't know what to do about their son's pornography addiction or their daughter's anorexia. Our churches are often filled with unmarried or divorced or widowed men and women who believe that they are without family 
because there's no one to stand beside them in the church directory picture. And yet, the cross shows us that we need each other. We will never be godly families until we are brothers and sisters to one another. Here's his point, and mine. We have to do this together. Whatever this is, and today, we're going to define this. Actually, we're going to let God's Word define this. We've got to do it together as the body of Christ. Listen, parents are the first authority for your children. You are the primary educators of your children. You are the principal stewards of your children. But behind every mom and dad, behind every single parent, behind every grandparent that's currently trying to raise their grandchildren because of difficult circumstances that arose, there ought to be the body of Christ which is another reason the local church relationship is so incredibly important. All of us parents or not are required to have skin in the game. Now, here's the big question that I want us to ask today as we start this, question, this, this series together. What are we after exactly? What's the end game? What do we want to see? See, I'm under the impression that there are a lot of moms and dads out there that are loaded down with guilt, and a lot of it is because nobody told you what the end game was to begin with. And you've grown up with some sort of self-imposed, or maybe it was imposed on you by your parents, some myth that told you this is what parenthood's supposed to be about, and you have this Norman Rockwell-esque kind of picture out there, and you're not measuring up to it. Well, let me give you... Let's you in on a little secret here. Nobody around you is either. They're not. But you've, you've induced yourself into guilt, and it's because we don't know the end game. I was highly encouraged to start putting this series together last fall. Started with our executive staff as they were talking about various departments, children and youth and whatnot. You know what? It would be great, Pastor, if you could do a series on what God's Word teaches about parenting. That's the way it started. And so as I dove into this and I, I started looking, and we're going to spend just mountains of time over the next several weeks in the Proverbs, uh, just because that, there's so much sound instruction there that, that's given to us. I mean, basically, you have Solomon, who at this point is giving his son wisdom, the wisest man in the world, imparting wisdom to his son, and you and I get to look over his shoulder. So we're going to spend a lot of time in that. I, I was so encouraged as I started building this series, and then some warnings started coming into my purview. Pastor, you know that at Covenant, there's a lot of strong opinions. There's a lot of strong opinions about whether you should or should not spank. There's a lot of strong opinions about whether you should or should not inoculate. There's a lot of strong opinions about how you educate your kids, public, private, home. There's a lot of, there's a lot of debate, a lot of really strong, but well, listen, most of that is just a matter of personal preference. That's all it is, okay? So, so here's my big way of answering all those questions. Grow up, okay? Yeah, be, be your own person, figure out what your convictions are, live them out as you feel is best going to accomplish what needs to be accomplished in your home with your kids, and, and, and you can talk about that, learn to get along with each other. Those are not unimportant questions, by the way. They're very important questions, but they're not the most important questions. Over the next eight weeks, God's Word tells us the right questions to ask, and I have not read one word in there about some of the things that we get in such an uproar about in our own culture. But I have read several things over the last several weeks in the Word of God that tell me, not only as a pastor, but as a father, what questions I'm supposed to be asking. And they tell me that the most important one is this. What's the end game? What am I supposed to be after as a father? 
And, and this is where our culture hasn't been particularly helpful to us. Let me give you three primary pictures of what our culture tells us is the end game. The first one is this. My child completes my dreams. How many of you had the dream nursery, at least with your first kid? We did. We did that. We had a, we had a parsonage. I was pastoring my first church in rural Kentucky. I mean, the parsonage was like, I mean, it was a little bitty church of like 50, 60 people. And the parsonage was like half the size of the church. They built this great big old thing. And we moved out of a little bitty two-bedroom seminary apartment and I mean, like it was one of the, it was so, that thing was so big, we had no furniture. So it was like, hello, 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 hello. But I'm going to tell you, we decked that nursery out. We found out Amy was pregnant with Samuel, our firstborn, and we, we put a Noah's Ark theme together. How many of you remember when the Noah's Ark theme was actually popular? Not, not the real biblical version. That would scare the mess out of a kid. I'm talking about that cartoonish kind of thing where you deck out all the, all the nursery stuff and everything with it. There you go. There's nothing wrong with having a dream nursery except for the fact that your second born probably doesn't get anything quite that pretty. And by the time kid number three comes along, if you have number three, you're looking at the room going, there's supposed to be a bed in here, isn't there? Like, it is less and less. It's okay to have the dream nursery. Just be sure that you do not so embody the nursery that you start putting these expectations on your kid that their whole purpose in life is to fulfill something that looks like that. Okay, your first clue should be that eventually they're going to poop on that. And then you go, all right, there's nothing happening. Very first time that Amy was supposed to come to church with our firstborn. I looked up and I didn't see her. All right, much smaller church, so it's easy to notice that my wife is not there. No cell phones, so there's no, hey, where you at? Just had to get up and preach and found out that she had gotten our firstborn all decked out and she had gotten all decked out and made up. And it was, it was time, ladies, you know what this is like? You, to walk into church for the very first time with your firstborn child. And he threw up on her. <laughs> like, that's reality, right? And if you start projecting anything other than that onto your kid... What's going to happen is your kid's going to grow up, especially if you keep that pressed down on them, even in an unknowing way, their, their whole identity is going to get short-circuited. They're going to think they have no identity apart from you, and they do. And they're secondarily going to think that, that their whole of their identity is, is all wrapped up in you. My child meets my dream. They're, they're, they think that the purpose of their life is to make your life better. The reason so many of them think that is because there's a lot of moms and dads who actually think that. And it just ain't true. Neither is this end game. My child meets my expectations. You ever see the movie Ladybugs? Some of you are laughing inside right now and others of you are like internally you're going, wow, I think I'm Will Ferrell in that shot. Like, oh no, this is... This is, yeah, my kid meets my expectations. Your kid exists to bring success. Your kid exists so you can stand up and say, that's my boy, that's my girl. And if they don't perform in a way that you go, that's my boy, that's my girl, all of a sudden something, something's wrong here. Their identity then becomes dependent upon whether you are pleased with your child's abilities and choices or whether you're displeased with their disabilities. I grew up loving the game of football. For those of you that are a part of the Covenant family, you hear me talk about it probably too much. I will admit that. Although Clemson 44, Alabama 16. I haven't gotten to say that yet this year. So, so there you go. Roll tide indeed. Woo. Yeah. Okay, I'm done. Here's the thing. I've got two sons. 
Neither one of them really care all that. I mean, beyond occasionally going to a game with me, they just have never had an interest in the game. Now, I can do one of two things as a father. I can either lament the fact that they're not doing things the way I would do it, that they don't like the same thing that I like, that they're not, they're not adding to my fulfillment when I go to M&T Bank Stadium or Heinz Field or wherever that place is that they're probably about to rip the name off of it in D.C. Come on, that was supposed to be funny. When I, when I go to those places with a, with a friend or a colleague and not with my sons, I can lament the fact that my boys aren't what I expected them to be. Well, or I could just admit I shouldn't expect that kind of stuff from them anyway. That's a false expectation. They have different interests, different skills, different talents, and there are other things that I can do with them. So I can either have a fake relationship with my boys, forcing them to the game with me so we can take Twitter pictures together, or I can have a real relationship with them that's actually based on, on who they are. But if my vision, the end game for my kids is, well, they're just there to meet my expectation, I'll never get there. Now, the ultimate end game, and this one's increasing in our culture now, is this one. Quite simply, my child will be safe. Okay? From absolutely everything. I don't want my kid damaged in any way. Okay? How many of you have heard the term helicopter parent? Yeah. You're gonna circle going to hover, going to keep it, going to make sure nothing happens. I had one of those once during a job interview. We were interviewing interns at the nonprofit that I directed years ago. A 22-year-old man walked in with his mother. No lie. All right. Moms listened to an employer for a minute. That interview lasted less than two minutes. Okay. First question I asked, she tried to answer it. I said, all right, we're done here. We're done. Um, that's helicopter parenting. You're always going to make sure they do everything just right. Uh, here's another term my fellow pastor introduced this to me just a few weeks ago. I'd never heard of it before, the lawnmower parent. Has anybody even heard of that? You get in front of your kid and you mow down anything that might be a hurdle for them. You don't want to make it hard for them, okay? Uh, everything that might be. So, so if there's trouble, if they get their first job and they come home and they're depressed, you run to the work side and you chew out their boss. Yeah, that's, that, that's not a good way for your kid to keep their job, by the way, but I'm just saying. Philosophical differences at college, take them out of the class immediately. Problems at school, well, it's obviously the teacher's fault. And you just mow and mow and mow, and your kid never knows what it's like to fail as a result. You know one of the greatest educators in the world is failure. Sometimes, now, now let me say this, underneath that desire is something really healthy. None of us wants our kids hurt. We all want our children protected. That's not wrong. You want good for your children. That's not wrong. But the issue is that we can't always protect them from bad things. And sometimes those things come because of choices they make that they need to learn from. And if you don't get out of the way and let them fail, they're never going to learn. Now, here's the problem. You take all three of those end games that our culture has given us, and I want you to now contrast it with the end game given us by Scripture. Psalm 124, 127 verse 4 says, Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. When you look at your kid, you need to see them like arrows in a quiver 
back behind you and your job is to get them out of that quiver, get them loaded in the bow, get them aimed in the right direction and send them sailing into the world for the glory of God. When God gives us children, brothers and sisters, he expects you to build a warrior. And that's what we're going to spend the next eight weeks looking at. What does that look like? How should that go about? How should that come about? And so we're going to talk about that. When they're small, what's that look like? When they're toddling around and their head's twice the size of the rest of their body? What does it look like to build a warrior? When they become teens and they get really snarky and they start developing a mind of their own, but they're still kind of dumb? What does it look like to build a warrior? When they become young adults and you send them out into the world, what does it look like to build a warrior? And then what does it look like when a warrior doesn't get built? There's going to be some of you that are, you're going to be sitting here for eight weeks, and if you don't listen to what I'm saying right now, you're going to be loaded down with all kinds of guilt that you don't need to wear because you've got a kid right now that has absolutely broken your heart, perhaps an adult child, and they're not what you envision that they would become, and they're rebelling against the Lord, and they're, 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 or they're suffering from addiction, or there's something else going on in their life, and the only question over and over in your mind is, what did I do wrong? And what typically has happened is that you've read Proverbs 16, or you've read Proverbs 22, 6, and you've misunderstood or some well-meaning person has given you a wrong application of a text like that to tell you that if your kid turns out wrong that somehow that's on you and that is a lie there's not a single clear promise in scripture that guarantees any kind of outcome so for some of you right now you're sitting there brokenhearted going what did I do wrong and and the, the, the simple answer is you you might not be to blame you might need to unload that guilt. We're going to spend a week or so talking about that. I heard a comedian just a few weeks ago say, it's kind of like if you just emptied your life savings, got it all in cold cash, put it in a bag, flew to Vegas, stepped up to the first poker table with an empty chair, and pushed everything you got to the center of the table on a hand you haven't been dealt with yet. That's parenthood. That's parenthood. It's one of the greatest risks you could ever take. It doesn't always turn out well. We're going to talk about how to view the Lord and how to view your kid in situations like that. And then the final thing we're going to look at is what should we view parenthood as? Whether you're a mom, a dad, a grandparent, how should we as the body of Christ collectively, what should be our collective vision for parenthood? But all of that starts with three necessary postures that are embedded in God's vision for your children and for mine. And the first one is this. If you want to get this started right, you've got to have dependence. Verse 1 says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who, who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. I, I want you to see the very clear twofold message in this part of the psalm. And the first one is, is really clear. Without your creator and redeemer, none of this is happening. You're not going to succeed. You and I as moms and dads are holy and completely dependent upon God. Look at verse 2 again. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. You know what that means? It means you can read all the right books. You can adopt all the right parenting philosophies. You can even start a mommy blog that like influences thousands of people. But if you are not wholly dependent upon the Lord and if he consequently doesn't come through, this isn't going to happen. And so you've got to do this God's way because God's not going to approve of the end result if he hasn't also approved of the blueprint. 
If you haven't even checked his word to see what is the end game for me as a parent, how should I show deference to him and his desire for the children that he has given to me? If those aren't questions you're asking, you may be headed down the wrong path and God doesn't bless blueprints that he hasn't commissioned. And so you got to be sure you're doing this his way. Here's the other thing you need to know. With your creator and your redeemer, you get something that I would imagine lots of moms and dads are looking for right now. Did you notice what it was at the end of verse 2? Rest. Sleep. Like some of you, you, you haven't listened to what, anything I've said for the last minute and a half because your eyes are still stuck on that word sleep. You're just like, I, yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Yeah, I got to have some of that because children, boy, they rob us of our sleep, don't they? I, when Samuel was born, uh, Amy was managing a bookstore and I was a seminary student but I'd also just taken a, a, my first full-time position as a lead pastor. And so uh, it was our conviction that she would come home and raise our child and that we would try to live on one income. That's not, thus says the Lord, God wouldn't impute that or put that burden on any family here unless he's actually leading you individually to do it. I wouldn't dare prescribe that for everybody in this room, but I will tell you that for us, and ever since that moment, that's just been the case, God has blessed us with the ability to be able to, to live in that way. And so we wanted to bring the kid home and we wanted mom to raise the kid. And so uh, because of that, mom, being home as she was, took care of most things, including that whole getting up in the middle of the night to change a diaper, getting up in the middle of the night to do a feeding and all of that. And I decided, well, I want to be an engaged dad. And so I told her, I said, look, usually on Saturdays, Saturdays are kind of slow for me. Let me take at least Friday night and you get a good night's sleep and dad will get up and take care of the baby. It was horrible. I mean, five, six times in eight hours. And let me tell you something, it didn't, it didn't help Mrs. Rainey either. Because apparently, I sleep through nuclear winter. So when he started crying, it would wake her up, and then she would roll over, and I'm doing this. You know, and there's nothing, there's just nothing there. It's like, is there even a pulse? Like, what, what's going on? And then she would have to start pushing on me, baby. Baby, the baby is crying, baby. Remember, baby? You were supposed to get up and take care of the baby. Man, they keep you up at night, don't they? From the moment they're born. And for some of you, uh, for, for some of you moms, you realize, hey, hey Pastor, you don't realize this because you're a dude, but it was about nine months before that. They kept me up. They caused sleeplessness. And then about the time they start sleeping through the night is about the same time they get more mobile. Have you noticed that? So then you're just like, whoa, whoa, whoa don't, don't do that, right? Or as a dad, you know, mom leaves the house, go get a haircut or something. And you're like, how'd you, where's the pack? How'd you get out of that pack and play? What are you doing on top of the fridge? And, and the reason you're worried about them is because, again, their head's twice the size of the rest of their body. So they don't walk. They just kind of, you know, like they're drunk or something. Furniture to furniture. Like, if this were happening in the jungle, you wouldn't call that a child. You would call it prey. Because it's just, you know, going around. And then they finally learn to walk, and you're not worried about them busting their head open on a corner piece of furniture anymore. And that's the time that they start talking. And then you get another kind of weary. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, there's always something there. Like, why this and why that? I want to. And then you take them to preschool. And then you take them or you drop them at the bus stop and it's their first step to the elementary school and you wonder what's going on. And then at some point in the middle of all this, they do their first night away 
somewhere, a camp, a sleepover, and then you just stay up all night thinking about Ted Bundy, right? Because you're freaked out. Then they get a driver's license. Then they get a phone and all of the internet, I mean the whole world right there at their fingertips. Then they move away, and through all of that, you're thinking about them, aren't you? There's never a time, ladies, from the moment you conceive, guys, from the moment that little sucker is born, that they don't produce some restlessness. So, so take some encouragement from the 127th Psalm that sleep is available. You're like, how do I get it? Well, notice what it's contrasted with. You can toil night and day. Here's the promise of God's word. There's no, there's no promise of a particular outcome, but there is the promise of this, that if you will do this God's way, if you will embody his vision for your children, he will shoulder the burden. If you'll just do what's right in the sight of the Lord Jesus, there's no need to be anxious. I've talked with parents multiple times. Well, I, I would do this, but I'm afraid they'll do that. I would do this, but I'm afraid they'll do that. You f don't fear your child more than you fear God. Don't do that, okay? Even something as simple as, well, I, I, I had somebody in my first church. I can't, Johnny, he won't come to church. He just shakes his fist and he says, I'm not coming. And I'm thinking, we're dealing with a 16, 17-year-old. We're dealing with rebellion. I said, how old is he? Seven? <laughs> really? Well, I'm afraid they'll hate it when they... What's the right thing to do? Fear God more than you fear your child, and then your child will grow up seeing their parent fear God more than anybody else. And, and that, there's actually a much better chance in, in that environment. This is my thing. You're not looking for the outcome. You're looking for what is right. And God says, if you'll do that, sleep at night. Go to bed, sleep like a baby. Sleep like somebody who believes in a sovereign God. There's rest available. And, and all of this truth, by the way, is anchored in a context that needs to be understood here. The opening lines are actually a, a very specific reference to the building of the temple. And, and there's some debate about whether this is Solomon's actual temple or, or if he's prophetically speaking of the one that, that comes later. Either way, there's a very close connection between the building of God's house and the raising of children. And if you want to know why that's important, it's because that in the New Testament, we're told that that temple was a shadow of things that were to come. We're also told that that temple was fulfilled ultimately and finally in the person and the work of Jesus. And so as we follow Jesus, as we give our lives to Jesus, as we put all of our faith for our hope of all of our salvation and the death and the resurrection of Jesus... We see the house being built. Look at these two texts from Corinthians and Ephesians as well. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Ephesians 2, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The New Testament teaches us that that temple, that physical temple in the Old Testament was a type, a symbol of something greater that was coming, and that which casts the shadow is here. I look at it when I get up to preach every Sunday morning. It is the body of Christ, universal, Jew, Gentile, united as one under the lordship of Jesus. And as we build that house, 
we can teach our kids how to keep that house. That's the point. If you want to build that temple, it requires the combined efforts of parents and grandparents and volunteers building the next generation. And the reminder of verse 1 that headlines all of this instruction is you can't do it without God. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. We've got to have ultimate dependence upon God. Secondly, we've got to have a, a posture of thankfulness for our children. Look at this next verse. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the room, a reward. See, we live in a culture that doesn't think that way. It doesn't encourage that, us to think of children as something to be thankful for, a heritage a gift from God. Our culture, and even around the world, there's so many places that treat children with disdain. In 1968, there was a book written by a man by the name of Paul Ehrlich. It was called The Population Bomb. Some of you are old enough to have remembered that book. You may have even read it. It, it sounded an alarm about population growth and that it would lead to mass starvation by the time of the 1970s. Right. Some of you look, need to look down at your gut too right now and go, yeah, I don't think that happened. It called for immediate action to reduce the growth of the population. China, around that same time, implemented their infamous one-child policy. Abortion became the de facto method of birth control at around that same time in, in Soviet Russia. And the whole thing was based on a myth. We now live in 2019 and there are 7.2 billion, with a B, people on this planet and you know what you could do? You talk about the world being overpopulated. You could take all of those people, gather them in one place. You could actually put them all in the state of Texas. And they'd all have about 500 square feet of free space around them. The issue has never been about overpopulating the earth. The issue's never even been about the supply of food. It's always been about the delivery. But yet we still treat children in this way as if somehow you see a child, you don't see a blessing and a heritage. You see someone who's contributing a carbon footprint that doesn't need to happen here. And so here in the U.S., the land of the free, the home of the brave, let's stop talking about Russia and China for a moment and just talk about ourselves. Did you know that right now in the United States, birth rates are so low that apart from immigration, we're not able to sustain our population going forward. Our social safety nets that take care of the elderly and the sick, all that collapses unless we have immigrants. You know why? Because the birth rate needed to merely sustain a population is 1.9 children per family. We're not at 1.7. That's what you got to have. And it's not happening. This has never been about supply of food or anything like that. It's, it's the way we view children. And our culture still views children either as a disease to be cured or a cancer to be cut out. There were two British ads that ran just a couple of years ago. One aimed at young women. There was a, a, a thing of lipstick and a, and a high heel. And right next to it was a picture of a pacifier. And it said, would you trade this for this? They ran another one for the men but where there was lipstick and a, a pair of high heels for the woman, you know what there was for guys, for men? A video game controller. Would you trade this for this? This is how we view children. And then we wonder, well, why is our society becoming what it's becoming? Culture still continues to see children in this way. And it's because we don't understand one very basic principle. When God chooses to bless a people, he gives them children. 
So, so take, take a look to your right, my left over here. And think about that. When God chooses to bless a people, he gives them children. And if they're brought up in the right way, they will solve so many of these issues that I've been talking about. And, and, but you've got to embrace the fact that the psalmist calls them a heritage. 219 times you see that word occur in the Old Testament, and then every single time it refers to something that belongs to someone else, but that is passed down to you. Amy's father, a couple of Christmases ago, suffering with dementia now, but uh, back when, when he was in much better shape, he, he, he brought us out in the garage. My oldest son came out there with him, and he pumped, popped the trunk of his 1965 Falcon, and he lifted from the trunk a refurbished 12-gauge shotgun, nickel-plated, um, Woodstock, just a beautifully, beautifully restored shotgun. And he'd already said, is this okay if I do this? I said, absolutely. And he handed it to my firstborn son. And he said, this was mine. This is the story behind it. This is the effort I put into restoring it. And now I'm giving it to you. That's children. When God decides to bless us, he says, these belong to me. They're not, they're not yours, by the way, mom and dad. This is why the meet my expectations vision for parenting doesn't work. They're not yours to begin with. They don't belong to me. My kids don't belong to me. They belong to God. They are my heritage. They're my inheritance. They're God's way of saying, I want to honor. I want to bless. I want to encourage. And so this, which belongs to me, I am now giving to you. He is giving us a great gift. And that's why we've got to value it. We see people come in with lots of kids. And listen, it's, it's not the vision uh, for, for everybody to have lots and lots of kids, but, I, but we live in a culture now where if you have more than two children, you get looked at funny, you get joked about, you get looked at with disdain, you get unasked for and unwanted advice. And then we wonder, well, they shouldn't have it. Who are you to say what they should or shouldn't have? Children are a blessing and a heritage from the Lord. And this is the way we ought to look at this. When you hear our kids laughing, when you see them wiggle around, when, 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 when we come in here on family days, how do we, how do, do we really embrace the fact that children are a blessing and a heritage from the Lord if, if my attitude as a parent is, well, if I can't get rid of them for an hour, I'm not coming. Do we really treat them as a blessing and a heritage if my attitude is, well, they're all going to have their kids in there and I can't hear squat, I'm just not coming. How do we view them? See, these are just the elementary steps. Gosh, it's quiet in here. Y'all still love me, don't you? But this is God's view. When I decide to bless a people, listen, live with the noise, live with the wiggle and the jiggle, live with the, the outcries. Let's, when we hear those things, when we see those children in our midst, let's act like they are what God's Word says they are. A blessing and a heritage. When we need help investing in them through covenant kids, whoops, now I've gone to meddling, haven't I? Treat them, respond to that invitation like they are what God's word says they are. This is the most countercultural thing a church can do, given the culture in which we live. Be a, become a culture that's truly thankful for every child. And then we need an awareness. Because it's not just about dependence on God, it's not just about being thankful for them, there's an awareness, more specifically, a recognition of why God chooses to bless us in this particular way. 
And that brings us to verses 4 and 5. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. He will not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Children are not a distraction. They are a blessing. But hear me, mom and dad, especially if you're a mom and dad right now and you still got a kid at home. Your kids are not ultimate. All right? Let me say that again, just for emphasis. Your kids are not ultimate. We have this thing we do sometimes, Amy and I, when our children are, are just having a fit about something that is just comparatively ridiculous. And if that's my kid, I'll just start doing this. Some of you know what I'm doing. All right? Now, my kids know what that is now. We'll just start doing it. You know, I'm on one side, Amy's on the other. What are you? We are the world revolving around you. Listen, a little bit of snark is good for your kid. That's all I'm saying. Occasionally, you got to remind your sons, you have to remind your daughters that they are not the center of the universe. They're not ultimate. God, God didn't give you your children. He didn't give me my children just so we could have somebody to spoil, somebody to give Christmas gifts to, somebody to collect piles and mountains of school pictures of, somebody to be proud of on Twitter, somebody to watch on an athletic field or on a basketball court. Children are not the end. They are the means. They are God's good gift to us to shape the future. You can't shape the future with spoiled kids. You can't do that. The metaphor here is one of the quiver. The more of those you have in the quiver, the more of those you can send out into the world. Too often we, we have a short-sighted vision of that. There's actually even an entire movement within evangelical Christianity called the quiverful movement that just says the purpose is for you, mom and dad, to have as many children as possible. Well, listen, if that's your conviction and you're able and capable of financially and otherwise supporting those children, then please, by all means, do that and raise them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Just know that a house full of kids is not the end. It's the means. The end is getting them out of that quiver and sending them where God intends them to be to affect the world for the glory of God. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior. Sending those arrows flying. So, so that's, that's what the question we have to ask right now. Is this what you're teaching your children? Do they live with an awareness that this is why they were created. If I were to pull one of these kids up right now, I'm not going to do it, so don't want So the kids are like, oh yeah, let me have the mic. And some of you are like, no, no, please don't. It's like, if I just brought a kid up at random and said, why do you exist? Why do your parents tell you you're on this planet? What is your future? Not necessarily what kind of profession they're going to take. How many parents would just kind of slink down at that? I'm just asking. Because that's the end game. Are you raising your child with that kind of awareness? Do they live with that sense that I was created for a purpose? I was put into this family for a purpose. Listen, I love that God has given us so many kids. I love seeing baby bellies running around this church. Makes my heart happy. I love seeing our kid men full. I love seeing our youth developing on Wednesday nights. I I love it because the word of the Lord tells me what that means. It means that God is blessing his church. And I'm thankful for that. Here's the question that we got to ask. Mom, dad, this is the ultimate question. 
Church, this is the question. Grandparents, step-parents, foster parents, here's your question. God is obviously blessing us. What are we doing with it to ensure that he gets the glory for it? Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for the wonderful truth in your word that we have seen today, that when you desire to bless a people, you give us children. And Lord, if that's the dashboard, we've got an awfully full tank as we look around this building and as we consider the, the children that are part of our church family. And Father, we ask you to grant us both an awareness of the purpose behind all of that and a dedication and a will to move our children forward to the greater glory of God, to choose the right thing, to live in dependence upon you, to, to jettison any guilt that, that we might try to put on ourselves that regarding the end game, Lord, that's up to you. It's just our, our role to do the right thing and to seek to please you in all things and to bring you glory in all things and to model for our children what all of this looks like so that they might be sent out into the world. And, and we pray for them even now, the ones to my left right now. I pray that mighty warriors, who, who knows, but what the next lead pastor of Covenant Church might be in that group. The, the next great missionary might be in that group. The next person to cure Alzheimer's might be in that group. Lord, we don't know how you're going to use them, but we pray that you do. And we pray that you give us a vision for what that looks like through your word over these next few weeks. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.